I can think of few things more discouraging and exhausting than a life of discontentment, where there is a constant swirl of drama and angst that is continually impacting your attitude and outlook. Life is lived feeling something is missing, longing for something beyond what you've been given. And there are moments of happiness, sure, but discouragement, emptiness, and melancholy always follow close behind. There are lots of thoughts and feelings and emotions involved, but it all leads back to the same place. I'm discontent with the circumstances of my life. And if you feel that way this morning, I am sorry. I truly am. It makes me sad. Uh, hopefully empathetic for you that you're going through that, maybe a little frustrated too. And I want to help this morning, and, and I think I can, not I, but Christ. But I might have to start with some tough love in order to do so. I'm sorry for your discontentment, but at the same time, somewhere along the way, you made a choice, a choice to continue to live your life that way. Because life doesn't have to be that way. It could be different. You could be content. Do you want to be? As you ponder that question this morning, uh, thank you for being here, especially those who are visiting with us. And if you have your Bible with you, would you open it up and turn to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to read a number of verses in Philippians chapter 4. If you want to mark your Bible there, we'll actually refer back to that text uh, a few more times over the course of our lesson, Philippians chapter 4. And we'll begin reading in verse 10 here in just a moment. You could be content. And 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is a wonderful thing to have in our lives. But what is contentment? Uh, the desire for contentment is a wonderful thing. But I, I'm afraid sometimes we're chasing the wrong thing when we think about and talk about contentment. Maybe we mistake a feeling of momentary satisfaction for contentment. We know that feeling, that feeling of satisfaction, and we say, I want to have that feeling again. And so we chase that feeling. And we chase that feeling in maybe all the wrong places. Christmas is coming up, and, and I can imagine that perfectly satisfied moment. Maybe it's different for you. But for me, I can imagine that uh, we've all had a big, wonderful dinner, uh, smoked turkey, uh, with all of the fixins, uh, and we come back into the living room, and the kids are playing with their cousins, and everybody's having a good time, and Stephanie's sitting beside me, and, and you look around, and you look around at all the goodness that is there in that home, and that family, and you're satisfied in that moment. Um, well, yeah, maybe so. And maybe we even say something like, I'm, I'm just so content right now, and maybe so, but I think that's the wrong word. I think that's the wrong concept for that feeling. I'm satisfied in a moment, and that's real. But real genuine contentment is supposed to be something that we have all the time, no matter the circumstances. And so I should be able to sit in that living room when everything's perfect at Christmas time and all the presents are opened and it's wonderful and say, I'm content right now. 
And I should also be able to sit in the hospital room and I've slept on that reclining chair thing that's just absolutely awful and I've not really gotten much sleep at all and I've got a loved one that's in that bed and be able to say, I'm content right now. Now that's easier said than done, but I think that's the concept that we should be pursuing. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, that's a mouthful, but I've, I've read a number of different definitions of contentment, and I think this is one of the best. This encyclopedia says, to be free from care because of satisfaction of what is already one's own, where you are, your circumstances, the things that you have in your life. Contentment is more inward than satisfaction. Contentment is a habit or permanent state of mind, while satisfaction has to do with some particular occurrence or object. So contentment we have all the time. This, what we'll call satisfaction, is something that we have when something good is in our life. Now, what does that mean in English? What is that saying? Contentment is always with me, or should be. And we all, every single one of us, and maybe it's more extreme for some of us than others, but all of us have been on that roller coaster of life where good things happen and bad things happen and good things happen and bad things happen. All of us have experienced that. But contentment says, whether I'm here or here, I have this same inner peace in my life. And we've had good things happen to us and bad things happen to us, even at different points in our day or our week or our month or our year or our life. And we may be dissatisfied in a moment. I don't like these bad things that are happening, but still content. And we may be satisfied in a moment. I like these good things that are happening to me, but still not content, discontent. Contentment is peace no matter the physical circumstances that we're facing. And I think that's exactly what Paul is describing, if you want to look in your Bible, in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Paul is writing to a church that he loves dearly. A church, a local church that he helped establish on his missionary journeys. A church that has supported him in the preaching of the gospel a number of times to this point. And yet he finds himself writing to them under house arrest, unsure of what's going to happen in his life, whether he's going to live or die at the hands of the Roman government. And so he writes to them in verse 10. And he says, in regard to the support that they're giving him while under house arrest, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now we need to see what Paul's talking about there when he says need. He absolutely needed these things from the brethren in one sense. When you're under house arrest, the Roman government expected your friends and family to provide for your needs. They were not going to be sending you an Uber with food for you to eat every day, right? It was something that was going to have to be provided for you by others. And so Paul absolutely needed support from various people, Christians and congregations, if he was going to have his daily sustenance. But that's not exactly what he's talking about. He says, I'm not really speaking in regard to need, for I have learned, whatever state I'm in, to be content. In regard to my inner need, my spiritual needs, I know how to be abased. I know how to be when things are bad. 
And I know how to abound. I know how to be when things are good. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul says, I've learned whatever state I'm in to be content. No matter what, I am free from care because I'm content with what I already have, to use the definition we read a moment ago. And Paul recognized something powerful in this passage that we need to see as well, that contentment is a learned quality. Being content is not something that just occurs naturally. It's not some gift of personality, though some may be more inclined to it than others. We think about a baby. When a baby is born, is that baby content? No. It might be satisfied when its, hung, when it's uh, hunger is met and it's changed and it's asleep. That baby might be satisfied for a few moments. But anyone in here who's had an infant knows that they don't stay satisfied for very long. Their satisfaction, their contentment is tied directly to all of their needs being met in that moment. That is not something natural to us, to be content when bad things are happening. But Paul says, as a Christian, we can learn contentment. We can learn in whatever state we're in to be content. And that means that a choice must be made, a choice to be content. So here is the fundamental question. And this is the question that we asked uh, in a slightly different way at the beginning of the lesson. Do you want to be content? Maybe I can express it this way. This is on your handout. If you got one of those uh, blue or some of them are white handouts, I want you to actually make a check mark if you have a pen in that handout. Actually make a checkpoint. Check the box that applies. I want to be content or I do not want to be content. You say, Reagan, what are we doing? What? Everybody wants to. I have to actually check that. Maybe some of you are saying, I'm not going to do that. He didn't have to. And you're right. I, don't, I can't make you do that. But I think there's something powerful in making the choice. And in asking this question, really all I'm trying to do is imitate Jesus. And a similar question that he asks in one way or another on a number of different occasions. Will you turn to John chapter 5, marking your spot in Philippians. Go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6 together. And hopefully you'll forgive me for asking such an obtuse question. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 5 and verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, And then beginning, maybe you have a footnote in your translation, beginning here through the end of verse 4, the textual evidence says maybe this was not in the original, but it's a good expression of what these people believed about this pool and this water, okay? They were waiting for the movement of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now whether that was true or not, that's what they believed about it, right? This water is going to bubble up, it's going to stir up. And if I can be the first one to put my foot down into that water, whatever ailment I have is going to be cured. So let's keep reading. 
Verse 5, we know this was in the original text. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, and it's interesting, we know that his condition was such that he could not walk. That's why he was laying there. I think it's uh, a little bit harsh that it's the first person who, what does the text say, stepped into the water. That's pretty difficult to do if you can't step, right? But what does Jesus say to this man lying there for 38 years he'd been in this condition? Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? I hope you can forgive my question about contentment because Jesus asks a very similar one here, doesn't he? Do you want to be healed? That seems like a silly question. But Jesus himself asks that. And I believe he asks in part because he's contrasting what he's about to do with the misplaced faith this man has in superstition and human wisdom. Jesus has the power to heal all ailments, to, ser- to solve all sorts of problems, including the infirmity of this man and including the discontentment that we might feel in our lives. In asking this man, do you want to be healed, Jesus is also asking, or maybe just saying, You're not going to be healed if you keep doing what you've been doing. If you think you're going to be healed by laying here by this pool and hoping that you can flop your foot over into the water first before anybody else, if you're waiting on two people to to grab you up and carry you and put you into that water so that you can be healed, it's never going to happen. And I can't be so bold as Jesus. But maybe in asking if you want to be content, maybe I'm saying that the ways you've been going about trying to seek contentment are never going to work. If it's based on human wisdom, if it's based on the superstitions of this world, if it's based on chasing the things of this world, contentment is always just going to be out of reach. And that's the way it is with all worldly solutions to spiritual problems. The world over-promises and under-delivers. And so we say to ourselves in our time of discontentment, if I just had this, whatever that is, if I just had this, then I could be content. If my circumstances were changed, maybe even just a little, if those circumstances were changed, then I could be content. But that's not really true if we're chasing after things to bring our contentment. The reality is, even if our circumstances were perfect, if we satisfied every one of our desires in every way, we could still be discontent. I was thinking about this because of something that I read a couple of weeks ago. Supposedly, Thomas Aquinas, if you've heard that uh, name, was once asked the question, so this great religious Christendom thinker was asked, what would it take to feel satisfied? The answer that he came up with for that question, what would it take to feel satisfied? His answer was everything. We would have to experience everything and everybody and be experienced by everything and everybody to feel satisfied. Now, the author of the book where I read this uh, account about Thomas Aquinas, he listed a bunch of examples. Quote, 
We would have to eat at every restaurant, travel to every country, every city, every exotic locale. We'd have to experience every natural wonder, make love with every partner we could possibly desire, win every award, climb to the top of every field, own every item in the world, etc. We would have to experience it all to ever feel satisfied. Now, here's the thing. That's not going to happen. But may I be so bold as to say I think they're both dead wrong. I think we could experience everything, everything, but without God, we wouldn't feel satisfied even then. How do I know? Well, because that sounds a lot like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Uh, turn back to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon, Solomon tells the reason for his writing, or more precisely, uh, what brought about him writing this book. And if we begin in the first chapter, in verse 1, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And he begins with this great word of encouragement. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's striving after the wind. And he knows this from his own experience. If you go to the second chapter, he describes all of the things that he's going to try in his life. And he says, I'm just going to do anything, anything that I want to do. He summarizes that beginning in verse 9. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this is my reward from all my labor. When I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the, to and on the labor which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind, there was no profit under the sun. Solomon... He had a lot of desires. And unlike most people in the world, he had the capacity and the ability to fulfill basically all of those desires. And after he does, after he tries everything and learns everything and fulfills every pleasure, he looks around in emptiness and says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and grasping after the wind. There's no reward, not really, under the sun. If that's all there were... That would be pretty discouraging, wouldn't it? Circumstances don't really satisfy. And so the question we really need to answer is, how do we learn contentment? Do you want to be content? If you say yes to that, then the rest of the lesson is for you. If you say no, then, I mean, I guess you could leave, but that'd be weird, wouldn't it? How do we learn contentment? How do we learn contentment? How do we achieve a state of contentment? How do we do it? Well, I hope we've demonstrated that it's not the circumstances. And so we must learn to divorce our attitude from our circumstances. Divorce those two things. Separate those two things. But Paul causes us to perk up by what he says back there in Philippians chapter 4. If you want to turn back to that book, you may at this point. Philippians chapter 4. He says there in verse 11, I have learned... And I really like the way the ESV and the NET translation translate this verse. I have learned the secret. NET says, I have learned the secret of contentment. Now that almost sounds like clickbait on the computer, doesn't it? Learn the secret of contentment. Click here, right? 
And the Bible very rarely does this. There are very few quick fixes, right? But here Paul says, I've learned the secret. You want to know the secret? I know it. I can tell it to you. So what is it? What is the secret that he learned where he can say, in whatever state I'm in, I can be content? It's right there in the text in verse 13. What does he say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that applies to a lot of different things, and we apply it to a lot of different things. But what Paul is talking about there is through Christ we can be content no matter our circumstances. I like the way Weist puts it. Paul was independent of circumstances because he was dependent upon Christ. And so we must learn to divorce our attitude from our circumstances, but that's, but that's not enough just to say my attitude and my circumstances are not related. Instead, we have to marry our attitude to Christ. It is because of Christ that I have the attitude and outlook that I have in my life. It's not because of my circumstances. Um, I want to ask you to memorize a verse with me this morning, and it's found right here in this same chapter, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. It's a short verse. It's easy to remember. Um, there's even a song that we sing sometimes, though, so you can put that tune in your head. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice. Rejoice. That's the proper attitude. That's the attitude of contentment. In the Lord, that's the source of that attitude. Always, that's the time frame at all times, no matter the circumstances. And then he emphasizes how vitally important this concept is by repeating it again. Again, I will say rejoice. I know we have some visitors here this morning. We're so grateful that you're here um, so you're going to have to take our members' word for this and maybe my word for it. Um, am I pretty honest about my shortcomings from the pulpit? Am I pretty honest about that? Um, some, amen. Sometimes we, you know, it's confession time with Reagan. I just tell you why I'm a bad Christian and how this passage helped me to be better. Can I be honest with the strength that I have this morning? Um, will you allow me to do that and maybe it won't come across as pride or arrogance? I've been content almost my entire adult life. Why? Well, I'm a Christian. And I learned early on in my life where true contentment is found. Philippians is my favorite Pauline epistle, even more than Ephesians or 2 Corinthians. You know how much I love those two books too, but Philippians is my favorite. And the first lesson uh, I remember preaching that in my own estimation was anything close to being any good, preached a lot of bad ones. The, the first one that I preached, I said, you know what, that one was pretty good. It was a lesson primarily on joy and contentment from the book of Philippians that I called uh, the proper Christian perspective. In preparing for this lesson, I just looked that up. I preached it in 2008 before I moved here, and then y'all got a dose of it in 2012. I re-preached it for y'all. When I knew a whole lot less about being a Christian than I do now, and that's part of why the sermons were bad. I was just learning, still am. And when I went back and looked at it, there were two sentences from that sermon that stood out. Christianity isn't a part of who we are, it is who we are. Christianity can't be a part of our life, it has to be our life. And while I didn't know much, I knew that and I still know it, that we must be consumed 
with Jesus Christ, Him crucified, and what a life looks like imitating and serving Him. And if we are, if we are, we'll be content. Because everything else will fall into place. Paul learned the secret to contentment, and I've learned it too, and I want to share it with you this morning. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When my life is devoted wholly and completely to Jesus Christ, contentment is a natural result of that reality. Solomon finally had to come to that conclusion himself. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, what did he say? The end of the matter, all has been heard. I've looked at everything, I've tried everything, I've learned everything, I've done everything. All has been heard. What's left? Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole duty of man. This is our whole life. This is everything that it is. And praise be to God that Solomon in all of his wisdom did not have what we have in Jesus Christ. He did not have the perfect example of what living a life for God is really like in God's Son. Paul put it this way earlier in the book of Philippians, back in Philippians chapter 1 and verses 21 through 23. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because you get to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. To put it another way, if, if we were to summarize what he says, to live is Christ and to die, well, that's Christ too. To live is Christ. I'm going to live my life for Christ while I'm here on this earth. But if I die, I get to go and be with Christ. And if that's the reality of my life, how can I be anything but content? Good things happen to me. I say, well, how should a Christian? How would Christ respond to this? And I can be content in that. Bad things happen to me. How should a Christian respond to this? I know the very worst thing that could happen is I'm going to die and I get to go and be with Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so if we learn this reality, we can and we will be content. It's Christ either way. So turn your life over to Christ and do what Christ tells you to do in His inspired Word. Let's pick up with that lame man. Go back to John chapter 5. He did this same thing. In John chapter 5, we don't know how old he was when he got this infirmity. Maybe it was from birth. Maybe he was 38 years old. Maybe it was something that happened in childhood, and so he was uh, you know, a little closer to his mid-40s maybe. Or maybe this was something that uh, happened a little later in his life, and he's an old man at this point. We're, just, we're not told in the text. But 38 years? 38 years is a long time to go through the circumstances that he went through. And so in John chapter 5, in John chapter 5, I'll get there eventually. The sick man answered him, verse 7, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. How disappointing. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now that's not what the law said, but that was their tradition. You couldn't carry your bed. You can almost imagine him. Hey, hey, you, you can't be carrying your bed. What are you doing? And I love his response. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. 
I mean, I mean, he doesn't even give a justification except there's a guy. I've had an affirmity for 38 years. There's a guy who came and healed me. He told me to take up my bed and walk. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take up my bed and walk. I don't care what you say. And if we saw, if we truly saw what Jesus is offering us in salvation, in the healing of our sins, we would have the same exact attitude. I don't care what anybody else says. Jesus saved me from sin and death and Satan. I'm going to do whatever he says. How much simpler a life is lived with that perspective. How much easier to find contentment. He says, I don't care what you say. Jesus told me to do this. He's the one who healed me, so I will do what he says. And if you're here this morning and you want Jesus to solve your discontentment, he can. Shouldn't you trust and obey his commands and submit to his will for you? Follow Jesus. Submit to his will. That's the road to contentment. Finding Jesus' will and doing Jesus' will. And And a great place to start in regard to contentment specifically is just reading Philippians 3 and 4. So that's what we're going to do now. No, we're not. We're not going to read all of Philippians 3 and 4. But I want to encourage you to do that very thing. And just just as a brief outline to maybe give you a, a little bit of insight into what you're reading and the steps that Paul is suggesting, very quickly look at this. We choose, we learn contentment by doing what's found right here in Philippians chapter 3 and 4. Paul says, I've learned the secret I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if we work our way back in this chapter and the previous chapter, we see the things that Paul did in order to come into a right relationship with Christ and where his focus is. We see, first of all, that he's placing his confidence in Christ, not the flesh. He used to. He used to place his confidence in physical things and the things that he has going for him and his success from a physical perspective. But he says... What things were gained for me, I've counted loss for Christ. Christ is now my number one priority. That's where I put my confidence. And we see in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 3, he's reaching forward to the goal. He's not looking back. So often our discontentment is because of pain from the past or worry about the future. And all Paul does is he says, I'm focusing on right now and what I can do and reaching forward to eternity. I can't control the past. I can't control even like the immediate future. But I can control what I do in the present and I can control having my focus on eternity and what I ought to be doing for Jesus in that way. Number three, finding your peace and place in heaven, not on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. And if our focus is on heaven, then all of a sudden the things of this life that seem so incredibly important, all of a sudden we realize that they're just a blip on our eternal existence from this moment forward and the hope that we have in heaven. And then some of the verses that just precede what we read earlier, we have to guard our mind, we have to guard our thoughts through prayer and meditation not allowing anxiousness to seep in, which often robs us of that contentment. And that's exactly what the devil does. He wants to attack us. And so Paul says you've got to guard your mind. The way you do that is through prayer and meditation on God's Word and meditation on the things that are pure and lovely and good. And then finally what we read 
This is not just some intellectual exercise. It wasn't for Paul. It shouldn't be for us either. These are not empty platitudes by some preacher on a Sunday morning. Paul applies these thoughts to his own situation. We said at the beginning of the lesson, Paul is under house arrest when he writes these things and says, I've learned to be content. And maybe I don't know what you're going through. Maybe what you're going through is far worse than anything that I've been through. That's certainly possible. But Paul probably went through at least equal, if not worse, in terms of circumstances. And yet he says of his circumstances, whether they're good, whether they're bad, I've learned to be content. This works. This works no matter the circumstances. But it only works if you're in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So which is it? Do you want to be content? Then come to Christ. Put the Lord on in baptism and rise to walk in newness of life. And part of the newness of that life is that it's a life characterized by contentment instead of discontentment. And if we can help you with that even this morning, won't you come now while together we stand and while we sing.